There you go. Green means go. Everyone take a deep breath. <laughs> wow. So, today we're looking at the fourth. I feel like I'm all, everything's wrong, but okay. <laughs> all right. I did, I did put pants on. All right. Whew. Okay. Today, we're looking at the fourth who question. We've been looking at some who questions. And we're looking at the fourth one today. And then next week, we're going to go into the last part of this section of Romans 8, which is more than conquerors. And that will end our series on Romans 8. And then the following week, uh, Gary and Rodney have some plans for us, a series that they're going to be heading up, and we'll look forward to that. They may have some thoughts on that next week to share with us. I'm not sure. <clears throat> but today we're looking, I've entitled this, If Love, Then What? And we'll see why I did that. But the question, the who question today is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I guess there's not a question or, or, or a word, a concept that is more discussed or written about songs and poems composed than this word love. Those who study psychology, the nature of people, say that love is essential, an essential need for people to exist in good health. And we know that lack of love negatively affects every aspect of our lives. It affects our health. Many years ago, there was this, a story, and from what I understand, it was a true story of a children dying in an orphanage. And, the and nothing was wrong with them physically, and so someone finally figured it out. Pick up these children and rock them and talk to them and love them for one to two hours a day. And they stopped dying. But without the touch, without the holding, without the talking, Without the rocking, they were dying. Lack of love affects our mental well-being, our attitudes, our social interactions, our social standing, affects our emotions. And perhaps one of the reasons we talk so much about it and we write about it is, is, is this attempt to try to understand what is love? How does it apply? How do I put this into to my life? And even... Look at the complexity of your own love relationships. And I'm not talking about just romantic love relationships. I'm talking about all relationships that you have established in love, parents, children, friends. And the frustrations and the joys and the problems and the happiness that those love relationships cause. There are degrees of love. And so at the simplest point, we all, you know, when we say the word love, we kind of agree with each other and say, yeah, I understand what we're talking about. But at, at, at its highest level, love is described in 1 John as God is love. And that's so deep and so big and so wide that we'll take a lifetime studying this word love and never understanding it because we can't understand God. And we often feel love. 
someone says something to us, does something for us, we get this feeling of love from the other person. A visit, a note, a touch, a look, an encouraging word, and we experience a bit of love. And I think we're at a time, I know we're at a time in our society right now, not only our society, but worldwide, where the feelings of love have been greatly diminished. Limited visits, unsocial distancing, no touches, no faces, limited words, the very things we know express love are the things we now lack. And ironically, we do it in the name of love. So it will not surprise me that in our current separation from one another in society, that many feel a growing distance in our love for Christ. And so it's a pertinent question. Who will separate me? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Because I think at this time in our society, we're feeling that separation. The scripture says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Last week we looked at the judicial attacks against us. Who will separate us? Who will bring a charge against us? Who will bring condemnation against us? Those are judicial words. But today they're more physical and emotional assaults, as we'll see as we carry on. And what we're talking about here is Christ's love for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And this is so important. It's not our love for Christ, but Christ's love for us. My love is often weak. My love struggles. I question my love. When I compare others' love for Christ or what I see their love for Christ and my love for Christ, I often fall short. I measure my love for Christ and how well I'm doing spiritually, how well I'm reading the Bible, how, how the length of my prayers, the number of people I serve, the responses I get from people. And the answer is my love is never enough. Yesterday I listened to a passionate preacher on YouTube. He said a lot of good and encouraging things. But what emotionally that left me with was something must be wrong with me because I don't have that passion. I can't express myself that way. He must love Christ far more than I do. And so we all struggle with that. And so let's be honest, and I try to be honest and real with you and not religious. And if I come across more religious than real over the years, I don't, I'm sorry. So to be honest with each other, 
the seven things that are listed that we read a moment ago and that we'll, we'll look at more in detail in a moment, they often separate my love from, for Christ, from Christ. When they come up, I question, does Christ love me? Do I love him? A young lady moved overseas with her husband, two, two little children. She didn't have any friends. She didn't have family there. Her husband's job caused a, had a lot of travel involved, and so she was often left home alone with these little children. One was a nursing child, colicky. She said she didn't get a full night's sleep for the first year of that child's life. And during the midnight feeding, she read Psalms 46.10, referring to the Lord as an ever-present help in times of trouble. It's a beautiful passage, except when you're in trouble. And she writes, I broke down in bitter tears. What does this mean, Lord? I need someone to knock on my door in the middle of the night and take a feeding. Exactly what kind of help are you offering? And that's honest, not religious. We can take that passage and expound on it religiously and sweetly. But in the midst of trouble, she says, where are you, God? And so right now, as suicide rates increase, a rise in drug, alcohol, spousal, and child abuse is being documented. Depression is on the rise. More mind-numbing statistics. And we ask, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And thank God it's his love for me and not my love for him. Seven circumstances in life that make us think Christ no longer cares for us. And so Paul catalogs these, and this is not a complete list. There's seven of them, and I think it's symbolic of the whole number, the perfect everything. But he lists seven, and he says, you know, you go from this one to this one, and you think, and everything in between, and you think Christ has left us. It's a great story over Mark chapter 4. Verse 38 is where we're going to kind of look at. Well, the story is Jesus is, after a hard day's work, he gets in a boat and the disciples and they take off across the water. We know the story. We tell it in, high, in, in Bible class over and over. We've read it. Most of us have read this. And as they're going across, Jesus falls asleep. And he goes into a deep sleep. And then, then, then the storm comes up. This uh, How does it say here? Uh, it's a furious squall came up, verse, verse 37. Waves broke over the boat. And I've been in Fiji in a furious squall, a, a, what they called a, a, a small craft warning, in the middle of the ocean with waves breaking over our small craft and people bailing the water out. And I, and I don't understand how someone can sleep in that. But Jesus was asleep. I don't think he was faking it. I think he was tired. He had the faith to just fall asleep. And it says that in the middle of this, the disciples, they, they go to Jesus and they, and they wake him up and they say, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They didn't say it that way. The wind is making a lot of noise. 
And the waves are coming across the boat, and he's sound asleep. I, I have no doubt they grab him, and they're shaking him, and they're saying, Teacher, teacher, te don't you care that we drowned? And he just kind of, have you ever been woken up like that? Oh, man. Wakes up. And it says here, he got up, rebuked the wind, said to the waves, quiet, be still. In the old translations, it says, peace, be still. We used to sing a song along that line. And maybe the words in the 1600s, 1700s had the strength of the words that are actually there. Jesus didn't calmly get up and just say, peace, be still. The words there says he rebukes the wind. Let me put up my picture there. There you go. He rebuked the wind. And he said, Siopa, which is be quiet. Confismaso, put a muzzle on it. That's what it really means. And the word, I think, siopa, can be stronger than be quiet. They're so strong that I cannot say it in this room. Because several years ago, I, had a, I said it in this room. And I had to, right over there, sit down with a six-year-old and explain to him that I was not swearing. That these words are just, uh, are, I wasn't talking to a person. And if you wonder what they are, Two words. I can't say them, but I can say, would someone please shut the door upstairs? <laughs> That's probably what he said. And we don't like to think of holy God saying, be quiet. Put a muscle on it. And so in the midst of our storms of trouble, hardship, and all the things we're going to look at, how do we react? How do we react in the midst of those things? And Jesus turned to them and he said, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And it then says the apostles, in my translation, says terrified. It actually says they feared with great fear. They feared with great fear. And I think I, I put myself in there and I said, how typical of finicky people like me. Why are you so afraid? The word is, why are you such cowards? Why are you such a coward? Why are you men such cowards? Don't you, don't you have any faith yet? You still have no faith after all the things we have gone through? Why are you cowards? And I think in the great storms of my life, how cowardly I've been, how fearful I've been. And then after it's over, I still fear with great fear. I walk around with fear. Why am I so afraid? Do I still not have any faith? 
And so we come up against these storms of life, and our fear gets the better of us, and we waver and we wane in our confidence. And our love for the Lord grows weary. And what we desperately need and what we graciously receive is the steady consistency of Christ's love for us. His love may chide us for our fear. His love may rebuke us for our cowardliness. His love may rebuke us for our lack of faith. But his love is consistent. And I'm so thankful it's his love that never separates. Not my love. And so we go to these seven storms of life. We're just going to hit on them briefly. <clears throat> seven storms of life. These words describe them. Some, some people teach, you know, if you just have enough faith, you come to Christ, you just have enough faith, and God is going to remove all these things in your life. Your life is going to be smooth sailing from now on. Just believe it, and it's going to happen. And the Bible and Christian history show that's not true. So if you've come to Christ believing that things are going to just go great with you, you're, you're living a lie. It's not going to happen. The storms are going to come. The waves are going to break over your boat. They're not going to go away. But Christ's love will sustain you during those storms. He will never leave you during those storms, no matter what the degree of turmoil in your life is. And these are the things that make us cry out, don't you care? And he says, I care, and my love will never leave you. As we go, we're going to go through this together, but my love will never leave you. And so we look at these different things. The first one is trouble. And this means pressure. It means it's uncomfortable. It's painful. It's pressure. It's like crushing grapes. That's a word that's used to crush grapes. That kind of pressure. It's inner turmoil where you just feel hemmed in inside. There's no escape. Anything from just uneasiness to extreme, extreme anxiety. That's what this means. It's inner turmoil. And then he says there's hardships. And this word hardship is a step further. It's troubles that, are, that, that take these internal things, but they're caused by external things that are happening in our lives. All these external things in our life just makes us feel like we're in a narrow space. And that's what the word means, just in a narrow space. Years and years ago, I was going through a, a, a cave. I was spelunk, spelunking. And I had to go through a very narrow place where we laid down and had to take our helmets off and just crawl through. And at one point, I got in there, and I couldn't take a deep breath. Both sides of the wall were against me. And I thought, I, if I get stuck in here, trouble, hardship. That's what this word is talking about. You're, just, you're it's tight. You're in dire circumstances. You're in extreme affliction. And then you have persecution, and this persecution is hostility because you believe in God. And it literally means you're running for your life because someone's chasing you like a wild animal. They want to kill you. They're hunting you down. Famine can literally mean without food, being hungry, being starved, but it can also mean, mean the same thing in your mind, in your emotions. How many times have we starved in our emotions for confirmation, for love, for help? can mean that and nakedness without clothing based usually on I'm running away from my life and I left everything behind me and all I had was the clothes on my back and they're wearing out they're worn out I have nothing 
and danger, any risk or peril that puts you in a harm way. And then the sword is a sword of death. It's a sword of execution. It was a sword that cut the throat of the animal that you're about to kill, that you're about to eat. Each one of those. And so he says, from the internal uneasiness to death and everything in between, all these tempt us to cry out, where are you, God? Don't you care? Don't you care? The waves are crashing over my life's boat. Don't you care that I die? And at this point, he quotes Psalms 44. Psalms 44. And it says there in the quote, for your sake we face death all day long. We're, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And many, as many of these quotes in the Bible are meant, they're meant for you to go back and look at the whole chapter. What's the chapter saying? The quote is a reminder of what everything is saying, not just, not just this quote. And so probably this was written during the time of Hezekiah. The following two or three psalms are definitely in the time of Hezekiah. And we did some studies on that uh, Wednesday night class a few months ago, I guess. But this is during the time where Hezekiah and Judah, Assyria, come from the north, this powerful, powerful evil army taking city after city and he it describes what they're going through as, as this this uh, this nation is coming down this warlike nation is coming down to take over them in verse 9 and i have them up here it says now you have rejected and humbled us you no longer go out with our armies verse 10 you we you made us retreat our adversaries plundered us uh, you gave us up to be devoured as sheep. You, you have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for repentance, gaining nothing. He says, during this time in Judah, over 200,000 Israelites, not from the nation of Israel, but from the nation of Judah, were captured by Assyria. We've lost 200,000 people amongst us. Us because of this nation and you've made us a reproach and people scorn us and there's just derision all around us you made us a byword he says among the nation people shake their heads at you and say that's what they're doing <laughs> look at you bunch of Jews think you trust in God he says what the nations are doing to us people around us I'm disgraced. My disgrace is before me all day long. I, I'm covered with, with shame. My face is covered with shame. At the taunts of those who reproach me and revile me, and they're bent on revenge. All these, here's the troubles of life coming at them over and over and over and over. And he says, but God, we had a nationwide repentance we had a nationwide repentance. We all turned back to you. And it says this, all this happened to us, though we had not forgotten you and, for, uh, and, and or been false to your covenant. We hadn't forgotten you. We hadn't been false to you. Our hearts had not turned our back. Uh, our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. You, j just check, check out our hearts, God. We were true to you. 
And all these bad things happened. I turned to you, I became a Christian, I started following you, and all these terrible things happened to me. That's what they say, he's saying. And then they challenged God in verse 20, 21. If we had forgotten our, the name of our God or spread our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of our hearts? Read my heart, God. I, I, I turned to you in full faith and all these things happened to me. And it's at this point that it's significant that Paul quotes here, for your sake. It's significant that the psalmist says, for your sake we face death. It's not for the sake of my sin that I face this. It's not because I'm being punished by a wrathful God that this is happening. But these things are happening for your sake. Because of my loyalty to you, because of my centeredness on you, God, I am considered as nothing but a slaughter sheep. Only good for meat. In other words, they're saying, God, we're going to trust you even if we die. We're going to put our faith in you even if it means I die. And perhaps the boldest words in Scripture are found in the next verse. Wake up, Lord. How do we dare call out to the omnipotent God? Wake up. Awake, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. God, through Christ, has shown us his wakefulness. That's what he did in Christ. There is no condemnation, he said in verse 1. And all the way here, to, is there's no separation. There's no condemnation. There's no separation. There's neither one. God is for us. He is on our side. Who can be against us? No one. Who can bring a charge against you? Who's going to come up and bring the charges against you? And the answer is no one. Who is going to condemn you? No one. Who's going to separate you from the love of Christ? No one. And it's based not on my pursuit of God. It's based on his constant pursuit of me. His constant pursuit of love toward us. God did not spare his only son, but he gave him up for us all. Don't you now see that he will graciously give us all we need? Christ Jesus died. He was raised to death. He is now co-ruler of the universe. He's appealing to God by his blood on our behalf. And God answers, justified. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Last year, there was a movie, no, no, two years ago, 2019. The Professor and the Madman. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to give you the spoiler. Played by Mel Gibson, is a true story of the making of the Oxford Dictionary. It was a massive task. It took seven years beyond the life of James Murray, who was the editor. Over 400,000 words, over 1.8 million citations 
to complete the Oxford Dictionary. And so the true story, James Murray was given the task as the editor. He sent out a notice to request the public for help, help them find words and in, in documents that we don't use, define them, find the definition. And one man, William Minor, a doctor, Dr. William Minor, became the greatest contributor, sent in thousands of words and documents of where they're tracing the word back and their origin and so on. It was 12 years before James Murray found out that Dr. Minor was an American physician. He was incarcerated in an asylum for the insane in Broadmoor, London, outside of London. And what had happened in a paranoia rage, he had shot and killed a man. Then he went to court, was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was put into this home. To make amends for his murder, he tried to give his military pension to the widow, Eliza, Eliza Merritt. And at first she refused. She wouldn't take it. But then one of the guards went and appealed to her and said, for the sake of your children, just for the sake of your seven children, take this money. And she said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it, but I want to see the man's face who killed my husband. I want to I see him. And at first, she hated him. She took the money. She despised him. But she found out what kind of work he was doing, and she brought him a book. Well, maybe this book will help. And over time and in visits and bringing him books, she began to have compassion for him. She be began to forgive him. She began to love him non-romantically, but she loved him. And in the movie, he teaches her how to read and write. She didn't know how to read and write. And one day, sitting in the garden, as she has brought him another book, they're talking, and she says, I wrote you a note. And he opens up the note, and it says, If love, then what? And at that point in the story, the man just started falling back into insanity and James Murray came on one of his regular visits to him and he screamed at him get out of here get out of here I don't want anything to do with you and he's like what's what's going on you know what why and he just screamed at him and he said this word let's see if I can get it up a seethment seethment get out of here James Murray goes home he had to look up in his own dictionary the meaning of the word. <laughs> and the definition is an obscure, obsolete Scottish law that requires a murderer to pay money to the family of the person he murdered. Minor could not accept love. He could only find redemption in assethment, giving up his money to the widow, pouring his life into thousands and thousands of documents, trying to, to complete this huge task of the Oxford Dictionary, paying and paying 
and paying for the death of another. And it drove him mad as he tried to pay for redemption because he could never do it. He could accept scorn. He could accept hatred. He could, for, he could accept unforgiveness. But he could not accept love. Murray was talking to his wife. And she said this. Sometimes when we push away, that is when we are most, it is most needed to be resisted. So he goes back with Eliza, James Murray, goes back to the mental prison to try and rescue this man from his, his, he, he's, he's well, I forget the word now, he, he's, he's just canatonic, that's the word, he's canatonic, not responding. And in that, he did, they were able to bring him out of it. And Murray's wife said, the answer, I know the answer, if love, then what? The answer is if love, then love. We drive ourselves mad seeking redemption. And our madness may not be expressed in the psychotic ways, even though I think it is for some. We fill our doctor's office and counseling offices seeking help, seeking medication for our guilt, our anxiety, our despair. And some try to achieve assessment through sacrificial service in the name of the church of God. And usually our madness comes in less dramatic forms then, but sometimes it comes out in self-destructive nature, actions. And usually our unrelenting work trying to achieve assessment ends in frustration. And then when the love of God enters into our lives, the temptation is to cry, not love, assessment. Let me, let me pay. Let me pay. But God pursues relentlessly. And we, when we push God away, God knows what needs, what we need most is to resist that push and to continue to pull us in. If love, then what? If love, then love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The only sane response to God's love is love. You're imperfect. You're weak. You're poor love. His love will never leave you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? None of these things. Don't try for a seethment. Just return with your weak love. Backing up in my paraphrase to verse 31, because I want to get all four who's in there. I write, in view of all these things, what is, what is left to be said? Since God's focus is on our interests and for our betterment, does it matter a whit who opposes us? 
grasp this. God did not cling to his own specially loved and divine son, but he turned him over, gave him up for each and every, each one of us. How could one with such sacrificial generosity not graciously give us along with him the totality of what we need now? Who will bring an indictment with charges against the choice ones of God? God himself continually re- renders the verdict right with God. Who are the ones crying out for a guilty verdict? Christ Jesus died and even more was raised out of death. Now he is in partnership with God, ruling the universe. He represents us, speaking and praying on our behalf. Who will serve us divorce papers from the love of Christ? When the pressures of life lay heavy on you, when life's walls seem to close in on you and crush you to filling you with great turmoil, anguish, or anxiety, or when others pursue you like a wild animal seeking your doom, or when you're hungry and find the cupboard bare, or perhaps when you don't even have a stitch of clothing. What if you were in absolute peril, your life in jeopardy with someone about to lop your head off? The scripture laid it out in black and white long ago. For your sake, Lord, we stare death in the face day in and day out. We are only fault as slaughter sheep. Kind of ends down. I want to give you some hope. Because at the end of this, you're only considered a slaughter sheep, he says. But, but, you can read ahead if you want to. God bless you.